that they would have greater impact than what I'm saying this morning. And, uh, and I also would like to have Joel and Tracy Gorbett come to the platform if they would, please. Great to have them here. If you do that right now, good. They're over here. And uh, we just uh, are so thankful that God's providence is able to be here today. I'll just say this word uh, while we're waiting for everybody to get together here. Uh, we're having uh, a great rally here, not in this church, but at Glad Tidings Church, called Canada on Track. That would be two weeks from tonight. And this is a group that is traveling across Canada by train, celebrating Canada's 150th anniversary. Among them will be Martine and Kelsey going by very quick with them in the ministry for them. And so there's going to be a rally that night. I just want you to remember that. And also Jewish camping that starts next Sunday and continues until the following Sunday. But next Sunday, nobody will want to be away from here. Now, I hate to undermine you in fact, because we're going to have this great couple with us uh, next Sunday as their first Sunday here as pastors of our church. Now, I don't know. Is that for the next 24 hours? Could I? If you would remain standing for just one second, uh, I'm not going to give away what we're going to start next Sunday in the series that we're going to do throughout the summer, and we've got all kinds of great things planned that you're not going to want to miss. But could I just take a, a I, I'm not the pastor for another hour, as he said, so I'll, I will have to ask permission. But as, as you continue, because this is not retirement. You know, in t retirement is impossible. He's tried it like 10 times. It doesn't work. Uh, the impact that the Buckinghams are having across Canada is still so great. And so he has taken a little bit of a, a time away from that to serve here in the interim. Uh, but he's going right back at it. And could we take just a moment to pray that God would continue to extend the influence of this church through the Buckinghams in the days to come? Could we just kind of join here together? Come on up here. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much as we think of the decades of impact here in this city that this wonderful family has had. And Father, we thank you for the thousands of lives that have been changed, countless lives who have entered the kingdom of heaven because of your work in and through the Buckinghams. God, we pray that as they continue leadership through the Buckingham Institute, as they serve both with the university and throughout the Maritimes and beyond, to invest in churches, to help make them effective in the mission of Christ, Lord, that you would continue to anoint them. And Father, for the rest of the, us in this room, and myself included, if we could have even just half of the anointing and blessing that you have placed on their lives, we just can't even imagine what you could accomplish in and through us. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless them and continue to bear fruit through their lives and through their ministry. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I will say just this one word, or I wouldn't say just one word, a few words about the Buckingham Leadership Institute for some of you who don't know much about what that entails. Uh, when I finished here four years ago, I was tired and didn't realize how tired I was, and then I got rested and got rejuvenated, so I feel like I have more energy, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart than I ever had in my entire life that I remember anyway. And so I am giving that to helping churches and helping pastors I knew I was going to have to do that, so in the middle of October, after I finished here, I had a meeting in which I did a lot of brainstorming with other people as to what uh, we were going to organize and how we were going to organize it and all that was involved. That was on a Wednesday that we had this meeting. And we made some progress, but not a whole lot because there's quite a bit to it. On Friday, Dr. Mark Gorvet, the president of Kingswood University and Pastor Joel's brother, had asked to meet with me over here at Swiss Chalet. I had no idea what the meeting was about. And he presented to me this idea of the Buckingham Leadership Institute. That was all their idea and everything that that would entail. And it was everything that I had envisioned and even more than what I'd even thought of. That, now just think about that. We're trying to figure this out on a Wednesday. It all came together on a Friday. And I called the people who had helped me, and they said, oh, pastor, that is it. And everybody was just totally excited about it. So what I'm doing, just to nail it down and make it clear to everybody, mainly I mentor pastors in different groups in, in New Brunswick and right now Nova Scotia. Hopefully that will expand. And we have about a dozen people in each group where we unpack what it takes to see things really happen spiritually as well as organizationally. And we talk mainly about leadership and what leadership really is and how to become a leader, that kind of a leader. We make it clear there's no fuzziness about any of it. And then we talk about the things that need to be implemented that can cause the church to go forward and to grow. And if you don't have the leadership to implement those things, then there's no sense in talking about those things. And so that's part of what we do. Then we do consultations with churches. And we go in for a weekend, do a self-study way ahead of time. 
and we interview people, do focus groups, etc., 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 teach about the main things that are necessary for a church to get off the dime and go forward, preach on a vision-casting sermon on Sunday morning, and then present recommendations to the congregation of what is going to be needed if that church is to move forward. And the reception to all of that and the mentoring has just been more than I could have ever dreamed of and it's been very exciting. So I had to cut some of that out when I took over here in October, but now I'm going to get back at it just as soon as I leave, go through those doors there today. And so uh, we're just looking forward to some great days ahead. I do need to say this too. I, I just cannot believe that a church could be like this church is. You are so great. Uh, your generosity, your vision, your cooperation. I, Pastor, I envy you in the days ahead. But by the way, just in case you're wondering, if he continues to pastor the normal time to your 65, when he's finished and you don't have anybody, then I'll come back at that time and try to fill in at that time. But anyway... Uh, the, the kindness and the generosity that has been expressed to us, I mean, it's just over, it's embarrassing almost sometimes. And what you did, for those of you who were here, some of you weren't here at that time, to do the farewell celebration and the generosity of that, the creativity that went into that, an unbelievable, who would ever imagine that in so much, I never heard tell of a church of any kind, any size, anywhere in the world that did as much for their pastor and his wife, as you folks did for my, for my wife and I in that wonderful uh, celebration of retirement there four years ago. And so we just, and there's other things that you've done uh, behind the scenes that has just been phenomenal. Then the other thing I want to say, coming back here, to work with the team that is here has been a joy. Uh, I've been trying to teach every week uh, some of the principles that I so strongly believe in that that help us all in our development and growth and the reception and the cooperation and the spirit of everybody on the team. I'm talking about the pastoral team, the staff team has been phenomenal and just been wonderful to be able to work with such a, a great uh, group of people. So uh, we have everything to be encouraged about in the days ahead. Now, we won't be here a whole lot, Pastor Joel, because we don't want to hear your preaching. We're going to continue to live here, as I think, as long as we live, and, uh, and we'll attend when we're in town, but we'll be busy most weekends doing other things, and so I'm sure everybody will understand that and rejoice in that. So now I want to look at some scripture here that is somewhat relevant to... Uh, quite relevant to what I want to talk about this morning. And we're talk, turning to Joshua chapter 1 and verses 1 to 9. So if we could have verse 1 up there, that would be helpful to me. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Now, I am going to be comparing myself with Moses. How do you like me now? Not really. Some people thought I knew Moses quite well. But I really didn't. And, and, but, what I, but there are some comparisons, especially in relation to Moses' weaknesses, his reluctance to do what God had called him. There's nobody on God's earth that was more reluctant than I was. And I'm not going to go into the details about that, but I mean, trust me, nobody I ever heard tell of had such a struggle with all of that as I did because I just felt that I was useless and, and, and I, was, I was 
bad in school and everything else, and so how could I ever do that? Anyway, so I finally broke down and yielded to the call of God as Moses did. Then, during the course of Moses' ministry, there was a lot of confusion. And I have to say, in my leadership for many years, there was a certain amount of confusion just because I didn't know how to lead. And I, and I didn't understand leadership. We never heard anything about leadership when I first started in the ministry. And as I studied the life of Moses, as many others have done, we see that his father-in-law came to him and told him how to organize the people so they could see things done that needed to be done and break them into small groups. And so I learned, with the help of a man in this church by the name of Bart Crandall, who was a chairman of our board at one time, vice chairman of our board, and Sunday school superintendent when I first came here. He was uh, a leader at co-op here in town, up in the big corner office. I remember going over there one day when I first came here, and the receptionist said, Mr. Crandall, there's a boy down here that wants to meet with you. Hallelujah. Now, I know you, you don't even know who I, we're talking about. We're talking about me. I was the boy. And uh, believe it or not, so anyway... He helped me in so many different ways. And one of the things that he taught me uh, was a whole plan of delegation. He said, first of all, you plan. Then you organize. Then you delegate. Then you motivate. Then you evaluate. And, and so that has been a pattern in trying to give the kind of leadership that we've tried to give over the years. But I had to learn that from others trying to help me in that uh, process. And many times... Of course, you, you all know, if you were here, and there's people here this morning that were here when I came here. I first came here 50 years ago. And when I came here 50 years ago, there's people here in this congregation that are here now. And, and I'm telling you what, this church has been reinvented over and over. And I have been reinvented over and over. I remember one Sunday night, a dear sister in this church uh, confronted me because that Sunday night, instead of wearing a suit and tie, I wore a sport coat and tie. And she thought that was too informal for church. I should dress the way I dressed on Sunday morning with a suit and tie. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, I, I, when, I I didn't even wear jeans at home up until the 80s, let alone in church, if you can imagine. So that's just a very superficial way of uh, talking about the reinventions that have had to happen over the years. And by the way, that dear sister, even though she sees me in jeans, <laughs> uh, she's still probably here this morning someplace. I don't know. But she has rolled with the punches and has been willing to make the changes in order to be able to be cooperative and supportive and see the church do what God God called the church to do, to connect with the culture, to reach the people that need to be reached for Jesus. And whatever it takes, whatever it takes, that's the spirit of what. So now, why am I so stinking excited about the future? You probably are asking me, what makes you have a glow? Don't you see a glow in my face like you never saw before in all your life? Well, it's because God called us to some things way back there 50 years ago or so to, that he wanted, that I believed he wanted to see happen in this city and in this church. And I think, and this is another comparison with Moses. Moses was to lead the people into the promised land. He didn't quite make it. And I feel like I have not made it anywhere close 
to what I'm believing is going to happen in the days ahead. And that's what makes me so wildly, enthusiastically excited this morning as I think of what God is going to do through that Joshua right down there by the name of Joel Gravett and his wife, Tracy, because as Scripture goes on to say in that second verse, if we could kind of get that up there, it talks about that he was to lead the people. Moses, my servant, said, therefore, the time has come for you to lead these dear people. Everything rises and falls on leadership. We've all heard that many, many times. And I just believe that God has called a man to this place who is a great leader. And I believe that for many reasons that I'm going to unpack here, not just for some superficial kind of reasons that might seem to make him a leader of what we see on the surface, but I think for very good reason. Now, what I love, I love about this scripture, it says, the time has come. Hallelujah. Brother, the time has come. And I know you're ready and anxious to get with it, and when I walk through those doors about quarter past 12 this morning, it will be yours. And uh, we'll see the time, the time has come and things will become what God intended for them to be, what God wants his church to be, uh, because I know of the vision that Pastor Joel has. Now, why do I believe that's going to happen? That's, that's, the, uh, that's the question that needs to be answered this morning. It's right there in the Scriptures. Verse 6, if we could pop that up there, we'll see a reason why I believe. In verse 7 and 9, be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead the people. Seven verse. Seven, sorry, you can go ahead. Uh, be strong and very courageous. You hear that? Not just courageous. You're going to have to be very courageous. And let me tell you what. Hmm. I know all about that. I've, there's been a few times when one has had to be courageous. And do not be afraid or discouraged because fear causes discouragement and that keeps us from ever being at our best and reaching our full potential. So it's very important. It's critical. It's of utmost importance that a leader be strong and courageous. And then in the ninth verse, this is my command, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. I mean, why does he have to keep saying it over and over in that scripture? Be strong, be courageous, be strong, be courageous, be strong and very courageous. It's because it's not always easy to be strong and courageous. That's, that's one thing for sure. But there must be a reason that you can be strong and courageous. Now, you say, well, what is it to be strong as a leader and courageous as a leader? I know what it's not. I know what it's not. It's not to be bullying. It's not to be defensive. It's not to come on in reaction to people in situations like gangbusters, like you want to half kill people because they don't quite agree with you. That is not strength. That is total weakness. That is like a baby, like a child. That's how children respond, not people who are strong and courageous. So being strong and courageous, what some people think is strength, and they say, oh, he's a strong leader because he's so dominant and so controlling and, and, and so uh, 
decisive and all the rest and doesn't really stop and think things through carefully to do the right things. That is not strength. That is weakness. That's acting like a child would act. And that's weakness is a reason now, and that we, I want to just unpack here a little bit. There are real reasons for that kind of a reaction. It's insecurity and fear. It's kind of the same thing to, to a great degree. And so an insecure person, to kind of compensate for their weakness and their fears, they will overreact to people who don't necessarily agree with them, and that can be expressed in a lot of different ways. So we know what it's not, so what is it? I think we see this throughout the Bible. We certainly see it through the life of Jesus Christ. So to be strong in our leadership, a leader who is strong doesn't blame. They don't have a blame mentality when they maybe are not getting all the cooperation or maybe the situation in a particular community is seemingly negative and in opposition or whatever, they don't blame. I can't do anything here because of those board members. I can't do anything here because of certain people that are giving me difficulty. I can't do anything in this place because of this community of Moncton with all of its problems and pressures. I can't, I can't, I can't, and they blame, 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 blame. And when we ever go down that road as leaders, we're no longer leaders because we abdicate our responsibility. And when I, why do I say we abdicate? It's because we say it's somebody else's fault. What can I do? So when we take that attitude, we abdicate. But real leaders, strong leaders, courageous leaders take responsibility. And they say, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not sure I know the next steps that we should take. But I know and I'm believing because God has called us to this, that there is an answer. And just that very thinking, that believability, that faith, that there is an answer, that's that ability and motivation to be creative and to come up with answers will help a person to figure out what the answers are. But if you blame, you just kind of put yourself out of business altogether. And so a, a courageous leader is one that takes responsibility to deal with whatever situations that need to be dealt with, with, with uh, love and forgiveness and courage and strength and find and, and does whatever it takes to find the answers that are necessary in order to see the situation go forward. It may not be they'll have the answers. It may be they need to meet with their peers, may need to meet with other people, may need to go to a conference. There's all kinds of ways to find answers. But the answer and the responsibility for the answer, after everything is said and done, lies in the leader. And then, and this is, this is one of the reasons I've got such confidence about the future. I would say a major factor in leadership is what we saw in Jesus, what we see in Jesus, what we've seen in all the other people that God has used to lead, people like Paul and what have you. We see humility. I read an article in the Globe and Mail, and I hate to be, in a sense, quoting from the Globe and Mail 
and trying to preach a sermon here, but this article talked about the dark side of leadership, and it, it defined different types of leadership that were dark. One of them was a narcissistic leader. Narcissism's all about them, not about the great good, the greater good, and the cause for which they are leading. But then they went on and talked about the bright side of leadership. And I got that Globe article, and will keep it as long as I live if I can, right in my hand here now. And this person that wrote the article, they went on to say about humility, that the people who are humble perform better, contributed more to their teams, fostered learning-oriented teams, and we have to be learning all the time. If we're going to be a leader, we stop learning, we stop leading. They were able to get higher engagement, involvement, because of that humility. There was greater job satisfaction and retention because of that humility. And then he went on to describe the characteristics of a humble leader. He actively, or she actively, seeks feedback. They're open to feedback, good or bad. Let's bring it up. Bring it on. I want to hear and get all the feedback I can. I've even said throughout my own ministry in certain places, and probably have said it here, that I believe there's value in all feedback. You can call it constructive criticism. You can call it destructive criticism. There's probably something in there that I can get out of that that could be a help to me. And I've tried to teach. Look upon feedback as gold. What do you do if you strike gold? What would you do if you struck gold? I bet you'd dig for more, wouldn't you? So you dig for what you need to find out to help you to learn and help you to understand and all the rest. And, and look upon feedback as a gift. I believe that's the kind of leader that this church is going to have in the days ahead. I think another big factor is someone, oh wait, I didn't read all that, my, 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 actively seeks feedback, admits that they do not know how to do something. I, I used to be like that. Put me in awful bondage. Figured I had to have answers for everything. And I had to die on every hill. Acknowledges when others have more knowledge than them. Now I know that won't be many of those people around that have more knowledge than Pastor Joel Garvet. But there might be. You never know, Pastor Joel. I know there's an awful lot here that have a lot more knowledge than I do. And uh, takes notice of other people's strengths and accomplish, uh, compliments them on those strengths. Insecure person can't do it because they think they've got to be the main one. So they tend not to be encouraging and helpful to other people. They appreciates the con they, uh, a humble person appreciates the contributions of others. They're willing to learn. They're open to new ideas and advice from other people. This is a secular article. I think the man must have read the Bible. So, humility, being self-aware. Oh, my. Oh, my. That's tough for all of us. But if we're humble enough, when people try to correct us and show us a better way or a different way and give us some new insights and ideas that we hadn't thought about, we'll grasp a whole of those with enthusiasm and thank God for the person that brought it to us and thank God for the insight and the idea. 
I think one of the things, Pastor Joel, that, that struck me in the interview that I was involved in, and I wrote it down the minute you said it. We were Skyping. I think that's what we call it. Is that what we're doing, Skyping? Something like that. And uh, he was in Tuscaloosa, and we were here. And here's what he said. I am hyper-aware of my weaknesses. Now, I'll tell you what. If we could all be hyper-aware of our weaknesses, we could go places, couldn't we? As long as we're willing to do something about them. And I thank God for that spirit of humility, and that stood out to me because of my own values about what I think leadership is. A secure leader, not somebody who is defensive and threatened and feels like they've got to get back at people and that sort of thing. A secure leader will create a culture where people do not have to be uptight about what's concerning them. They, they have the freedom to be able to express their concerns. And that secure leader, see, insecurity is, is fear. When we're operating in fear, we don't see things as they really are. We see things as we are. And that twists and fouls everything up and confuses everything because of our own lack of being able to see things objectively. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a leader who cannot see things as they really are, but they're all twisted themselves, and that's how they see everything is through those glasses. And, and I'm telling you what, we have complex problems to deal with. Did you know that, Pastor Joel? They're complex problems. Complex problems to deal with. Can you imagine dealing with those complex problems with all the complexities and see them in a messed up way and, and take really what happens when a person does not have that security and humility? They take simple things and make them complicated. And a person who can see things as they ought to see things, see things as they truly really are because of their own sense of security and they're not operating and functioning out of fear, they will be able to take the complex and difficult things and simplify those things and find answers. That's the difference. Well, I, I've said, I've probably said it here, but people who are insecure and people who are subjective and they don't see things as they really are, it's like trying to get around Boston with a map of Toronto. <laughs> really and truly. Now you just stop and think about that in dealing with all the issues that we have to deal with. Seeing things, I mean, it's just like a bad dream. You've got this map and you're and you're, you're seeing this street and it doesn't nothing computes. I mean, you can't even get around Boston with a map of Boston, let alone a map of Toronto. You've been there, it's so it's so challenging. And so that objectivity is of utmost importance. And then I would say, a person who has developed the kind of security that needs to be developed, and I'm going to talk about just briefly this morning how to develop that security, because it could be helpful to all of us. They're not the kind who either in reaction to opposition or in reaction to complicated issues, it's either fight or flight. Now, what do I mean? They either want to fight about it because they've got this defensive, I-know-it-all mentality, or it is so difficult to them 
Because of their insecurities, they don't want to deal with it at all. Either way, it's going to be a terrible outcome. You know, I say there's two problems in all churches. There's the measles problem and the cancer problem. And there's lots of it. Lots of measles, lots of cancers. And we have to decide and figure out as in leadership, if, we're, if we can be objective, we'll be able to figure it out. What's the difference between a cancer problem and a, a measles problem? Well, a measles problem is going to come and go, so there's not much sense putting a whole lot of time into a measles type of problem. But if it's a cancer problem and it's not dealt with in the right way, it's going to eat us alive. And so there are certain situations that need to be dealt with objectively and kindly and in a forgiving way. So how do we go about that? The secure, non-fearful, non-defensive, forgiving, loving pastor, which I believe God has given to us here in this church, will react this way. Whenever there's somebody maybe standing in opposition even to that, to the leader, and we all have that happen, they will seek to meet with that person, but not meet with that person until they have more compassion for that person than whatever it is they're trying to resolve by meeting with that person. Are you with me? I mean, that is not always easy to come by. I usually have to wait three days at least to get that compassion in my spirit. There's been some people I've wanted to kill and had to wait at least two weeks to get that compassion in my spirit but I'm not going to deal with it until I have that compassion for them in my spirit. Now, I've made a mistake a time or two. I'm not saying I've been perfect at this. I don't want to imply that because there's been somebody probably here, maybe, who has had the brunt of my not having the compassion that I should have had. But here, I would say there's four steps in this process. Number one, to make sure if we're going to deal with a situation that we have compassion. Number two, before we seek to be understood, and that's often the way of a controller and a bully type and a dominant type and a, a defensive type, I want you to understand, you know, type of attitude. No, it's not that. I want to hear where you're coming from. I want to hear what you're, I want to understand why you're thinking the way you're thinking, why you feel the way you feel, and you have that spirit of understanding. And then once, once you can figure that out, you hear that, then you can go on to explain why it is that you think the way you're thinking. And I know I've said this before, but I, I like the little formula that is, it's a good formula, but it's got to come from the heart or it's fake and it will come across in a counterproductive way. And the formula is feel, felt, found. When somebody is upset about something, well, look, you know something, I understand how you feel. And they just kind of look at you Oh, how in the world do you understand how I feel? Because you know some I have felt the same way myself. Maybe not about that situation, but some other situation. Well, by that time, all their anger and, and, and defensiveness and fear and all that has been diffused. And then you can go on and say, but this is what I have found. And explain what is behind whatever has been done. Or say, you're absolutely right. Thank you for that. And, and when I was here, one of the big habits that we had was responding to every card that came in 
uh, and, and either say to the person, contact the person, whatever pastor is responsible, and say, look, you're absolutely right. Thank you for that insight. Or we would contact them and try to explain to them. And then, this may not seem very strong, but I know that's what we're going to get, Pastor Joel. The reason I'm so excited, all this is kind of what I feel toward you folks. I, I, I really do. The, the next thing here, I shouldn't be walking all over the place because the camera can't keep up with me, I suppose, and I want you to all see me, you understand? And again, I'm joking about that. I shouldn't even have said that. Um, so, so then you speak to the, you speak once you have met and talked with compassion, once you have sought first to understand, then the next thing is to speak in a respectful tone. You can say the same thing in one tone, it can be disrespectful. The very same thing in another tone, it can be so respectful. But then, as a leader, if you can establish that, the next step is to speak with candor and clarity. You don't pussyfoot. You don't beat around the bush. You explain very clearly in a way that anybody could clearly understand. Now, let me tell you something. For all of us, that takes strength. The easy thing to do is to have no compassion. The easy thing to do is show no understanding. The easy thing to do is to speak in a disrespectful tone and bombast, but that is not secure Christ-like leadership. Now, how does this happen? I want you to see on the screen, by the way, there's one verse I didn't put up there. I want them to see. It's verse 8 and the latter part of that verse, and this is what we can be sure of. Listen, my dear brother, only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do, and I believe with all my heart that's what's going to take place because of understanding what the Bible says about what I just talked about. So how does this all happen? I want you to look at a verse of Scripture. I'm going to use this as an illustration in John chapter 20 and verse 19. John chapter 20, and it's the New King James Version that this is written, so it will be a little different than what you have. It says, after this was after Jesus rose from the dead, it says, he came and he stood in the midst, that's important to what I'm about to say, and said, peace be with you. Now, here's what I want to say to all of us. The key to all of this is having Jesus in the midst or more importantly, saying it a better way, to have Jesus truly at the center of our lives. And that means if he's at the center and he's in control, we're going to be behaving like Jesus would behave. Would that not seem reasonable? And so, yeah. As we think of that, the way Jesus behaved, I, I, when I teach this to future or pastors that I mentor, there's about seven steps to developing this security. And, and, and when I say security, that doesn't mean much, but it's kind of being able to function without fear, being able to function with freedom. 
I think that's what Jesus was all about wanting for all of us, is to have that freedom so we didn't have to function in dealing with situations in fear. After I caught on to this, I'll just say this by way of my own testimony, I found myself able to deal with the most difficult people and the most difficult situations without any fear and apprehension ahead of the fact if I, if I was confident, I would go about it in the right way. It would always bring about the best result. And that's a wonderful freedom just to be able to think of it ahead of the fact that you're going to be able to do it that way. So what am I saying about Jesus in the midst there? I think the best way to describe what is at our center, here, oh, let me say this first. I think when you hear me or anybody else talk about being Christ-centered, that's, that's what is needed. That's the most important thing for all of us. Not, no question about it. But my, what I do question is whether we fully understand what being Christ-centered is. I can't be the judge, but my guess would be there's not very many people that really know truly what it is to be totally Christ-centered. Now, why is that so important? I think what most people, with most of us, even people who have become Christians, they haven't, not, not all have got there yet, there's a tendency to have other centers in our lives, another center of some kind. What, what is a center? Well, I would most simply define it, probably, as the thing that is the very most important to us. Now, we may not even realize that this is the most important thing to us, whatever it is that's important to us. We may not be self-aware enough to know that there's certain things that are far more important to us than they should be, and that is keeping us from experiencing the security and the peace. Jesus said, peace be with us. Just keep that verse up there. Uh, peace be with you. Uh, that's kept, that keeps people from having that peace because he's not truly in the midst. He's not truly at the center. Now, what do I mean when I explain these centers that we have? You see, there's people who are money-centered. There's people who are sin-centered. There's people who are pleasure-centered. There's people who are education-centered. There's people who have all kinds of different centers. And those, that center would be the thing that is the very most important thing to them. But those things that I've just mentioned are fluctuating, changing things. So we'll just say, for example, if a person is education-centered, and I met people like this, man, when they were around people who were more educated than they were, they would flaunt their big words and their credentials and their education because that's where the security was, and they would feel powerful and confident and strong. And I've watched this seeing them get with somebody who had far more education than they did, and they became like a little wallflower. They totally changed because that was so important to them, it made them feel inferior because somebody else had more, you could say money or any other thing that you wanted to put in there. So those things can change. I've often thought about people of all kinds of money. They can pontificate, and they can put it over on others, and they think their money talks, and so on, so on, so on. But then... If they lose all their money, they commit suicide because it's so important to them. They lose all their peace because of the importance of money. Or here's somebody, or if they're around people who've got more money, because those things are going to be changing all the time. And so we're always going to be in a state of flux and never really the same on a, on a stable basis if we're depending upon those things as our, as our center. But listen, I've got good news for you. There's somebody... The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. And when he is reigning and ruling, he is at the center. He is in control. But the question is, what, how do I see, how do I go about that? As I see Jesus, this is the best way that I know to define it, and I could illustrate here for the next hour, and I'm not going to take any time to do that. I'm just going to tell you how that happens and then leave it up to you. As I look up Jesus from my perspective, I see somebody who never got on the defensive. I mean, he had every reason to go on that cross. He could have rebelled and reacted, but he said, Father, forgive them. None of us had to go through that. And that was his spirit. Jesus was always predominantly concerned about what he could do to add value to other people's lives. He was always predominantly concerned about what he could do to um, encourage other people and, and make them feel the best that, he, that they could feel about themselves. That, he didn't come in the world to condemn the world. He wanted the best. He wanted to do, and he had to confront some people, of course. He wanted to do what was in everybody's best interest, what would be best for them. He never was, a, it was never about how other people could make him feel about himself. Now, I know there was a time in my life, in my insecure days, when I was very needy of affirmation and compliments and all of that kind of stuff until there came a time when I decided, look, this is wrong. I am going to just be focused on what I can do to make others feel better about them rather than anybody having to feel the need to make me feel better about me because that is what I saw in Jesus and making that a practice. Now, it's easy to talk about, but it's another thing to decide to do it in all the circumstances we find ourselves in. But I'll tell you, my friend, that will set you free if you put him first. And he's at the center. It will set you free free. And this is what Jesus came for. This is the conclusion of the matter. And if there's only one thing that I had to say as a conclusion of pastoring this church over all these years, this is what I would like for you to hear in the conclusion of the matter. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 31 and 32, hold to these teachings of mine and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, we've all heard and we hear it said all the time, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. But what we don't hear so much is what Jesus said prior to that in verse 31, hold, hold fast, I get the feeling. Hang on to these things. Because every, every force on God's earth is going to gravitate against us holding on to making him first, being concerned about others regardless of how they respond to us, and being able to add value to other people's lives, to hold on to that way of life. There's forces, powerful forces, Satan's forces that will gravitate against that and try to keep us from continuing consistently to do that. But if we can do that, and I, I, the reason I, I'm, I want to conclude with this little thing I would say the number one passion that I have had all these years for everybody that I have been responsible 
for to be their pastor, the number one thing above everything else is that people be totally free. My concern is a lot of people right in this room are not necessarily totally free. But that's been my passion and explain how, what steps to take to experience that total freedom. Listen, hold to his teachings. Hold to having him first in your life at the center. And I tell you, then and then only will you know the truth that will set you free.